Uh, Peter, and thank you to every one of you for being here. It is an enormous privilege to be here. And um, I have actually talked about the early days of Shazam many, many times, but uh, today I, I decided I'd call this Imagine, because my parents could never have imagined that I'd be here at Oxford, you know, standing up on stage presenting. They thought, it's not possible, you're, you're having a laugh. Um, and I was invited to this wonderful gala dinner yesterday, and I had to take the, the selfie and send it across to my parents. They said, no, it is true, you know. And, um, uh, it's, uh, the, the funny thing is that, uh, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll tell you my, my, my story, um, which is, um, I, um, I'm from India. My, my father used to work for Air India, so I grew up a little bit all over the world, so uh, in France and in Switzerland and uh, Japan and in Singapore. And I went to university in the U.S. at uh, Dartmouth College, and uh, after graduation, I ended up in San Francisco uh, working as a management consultant at Bain. And uh, that, to me, was like what you did uh, you know, when you went to, you know, you, I had a e mathematical economic degree, management consultant done. I worked uh, on the 33rd floor of one of these buildings, and uh, the lights were off and on because a lot of us were there late into the night. Um, and uh, after about uh, three years of this, I thought uh, the customary route is to, you know, get an MBA. And uh, my number one criteria was uh, sunshine. So apologies, Peter. I know that... Uh, Harvard is a much better institution, but um, I ended up at uh, Stanford Business School. Um, where I was there for, uh, I'm sorry, I know, sec second-rate uh, institution, but nonetheless, it was the best I could do. <laughs> so I was there from 1995 to 97, um, just when the internet was effectively starting up. Now, I've done myself a huge disservice already by uh, revealing my age. Um, uh, this is what phones looked like back in the day. Um, I was actually approached by the Faculty of History of Oxford University, and, uh, which is really quite disturbing, so it's much nicer to be here at this school. Um, did anyone have one of these phones? Uh, oh, seriously? <laughs> what? How is that possible? <laughs> Wait. You're just saying that to make me happy, right? It's not possible. <laughs> okay, okay, slightly tougher question. There's a number up there. Okay, do you see that number 2580? Does anyone know what that number means or is? Anyone? Anyone? Can I see some hands, please? I'm going to cold call you. I'm not afraid. Skydeck. Anyone? Anyone? No? Nobody? Yes, there's a hand in front. No! Oh, come on! I can't believe it. No! Oh my goodness, there's a crisis. Yes. No! This is going awfully wrong. Yes. No! I, okay. So some of you are faking. Yes. No! Yes? Yes, and what, do you, what happens if you dial that number? You know what, guys, I only have an hour. <laughs> I can't keep doing this. Okay, I'm going to have to reveal all. Some of you are making, telling porkies about owning that phone because none of you knows what 2580 stands for. I will tell you all. So this right here, that Motley crew, is uh, my co-founders and I. Now, the guy I'm sitting next to, uh, Chris Barton, he was, he was a drinking buddy of mine. And... We used to sit around, this is, you know, imagine in, you know, 97, 98, you know, 
everyone wanted to be an entrepreneur. We were entrepreneurs. So we're like, right, so we're going to start a business. Let's come up with some ideas. And um, unfortunately, I don't know if any of you have tried this, but drinking and brainstorming doesn't go well together. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing much would happen. Um, but we, we kept persisting because it was like the Wild West. And so one of the things about Chris is that he never knew what music was playing. He, you know, we'd be out in like pubs and bars and stuff, and, and it always wondered, like, what is that song? And so he had an idea, which was, how about if we could plug into all the radio stations in the country and get a feed of what they were playing, and then we'd be able to identify that song. So that was his idea. Now, Chris had the misfortune to go to uh, an even more distributable institution, uh, otherwise known as Berkeley. Um, and uh, his good buddy there on the right, Philippe, um, was his study buddy. They'd you know, try to do their homework together. Now, his professor of strategy um, said to him, if you have an idea, think about what would put that idea out of business. And uh, lying in bed, he thought, what would put my idea out of business? And he thought, wait, if you could use a mobile phone to identify any music, not just on the radio, but anywhere, that would put it out of business. So that's how he came up with the idea for Shazam. Now, when I heard the idea for the first time, the first thing I thought was, yeah, I, I hear music all the time. I have no idea what it is. That would be really useful. But I thought, wait, hang on a second. So how are we going to do this? Like, um, where, where are we going to like, find this technology? He said, oh, don't worry. We'll just invent it. <laughs> now, I can assure you, I, I, this is being recorded, so I need to be discreet. If you go to Berkeley Business School, you've got no chance of inventing a brand new technology which doesn't exist. So I was like, all right, okay, sorry. I mean, I don't, I don't want to come across as negative, but um, you want to identify any song which is available? How are we going to find all this music? He said, oh, we'll just speak to the record companies, and I'm sure they can help us out. Now, because I was a management consultant, I'd gone from being a management consultant to being an internet consultant. I was helping big companies build digital businesses in the first wave of the web. And one of my clients was Universal Music. And I could tell Chris authoritatively that the record companies in 1999 did not have a catalog of all the digital music. And he's like, OK, look, look, let's just get beyond that. What, what else do you have on your mind? I said, I have an MBA, right? So tell me this. What's the business model? And he said, well, that's easy. When people identify a song, they're going to you know, click and buy a CD. And that's how we're going to make money. You're dreaming. Right? Have you heard of Napster? I mean, people are downloading music for free all the time. There's no business model here, buddy. Um, but the problem with, uh, with, with, with Chris is that he just sort of brushed my objections aside. And for those of you paying attention, uh, uh, you know, I have amazing spreadsheet skills from my many, many hours uh, at, at Bain & Company and my, my uh, maths degree. So I did a little spreadsheet. So I said, Chances of inventing the technology. Make up, make up a number, I don't know, 15%, yeah. Uh, chances of finding all the music you know, available in the UK, 30%. Chances of like, coming up with a business model which makes more sense than what this guy has in mind. Plug in a number. So I multiplied the whole thing through, and it came out with it's a 4% chance this would work. So I quit my job and jumped in. <laughs> 
Now, you have to remember that we had a secret weapon. And our secret weapon is uh, Philippe at the end. Now, Philippe, he is like, he's got these superpowers. He is just like, could do like incredible things. While we were arguing amongst ourselves, he would just get stuff done. And um, it was incredible because, you know, we, so first of all, I mean, the one thing which we all had in common is that we knew nothing about music. Um, the, the, it's handy. Like, you know, we, uh, so this morning, um, Rich was talking about, what was it? He was, it was the, the blessing of adversity or something like that, right? Uh, I'm sorry? Yes. What, what was the exact term he used? The gift of desperation. So we had the gift of cluelessness. We're like, we're, uh, uh, so what is that? So I don't know. Um, we, and we, we, we knew so little about technology, we didn't even know the domain of science we were supposed to look in, let alone how to find the solution. Um, and it turns out it was digital signal processing. And the experts of digital signal processing were at Stanford and at, at, uh, at Berkeley, which was really handy. So Chris and Philippe were finishing up their MBAs, and they started like talking to experts. Hey, we're looking for an inventor. Can you help? And uh, I don't know if any of you here are technical, but that's not the kind of conversation you want to have with you know, a bright-eyed and bushy-tailed MBA. Um, and the problem that they were trying to solve was like this. So they wanted to, you know, using... Uh, a mobile phone handset, uh, which has a terrible microphone, with 15 seconds of music, um, you know, over a phone network which causes distortion, matching it across about um, a million songs uh, in real time, so that we could deliver a result to listeners within seconds at an economic cost in order to build a business. So that's the problem they were trying to solve. And every expert they spoke to said, forget it. It, 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 can't, it can't be done. You know, it's not possible. Um, but then they got hold of uh, the head of Stanford's Center for Computer Research in Music and Acoustics, a uh, professor by the name of Julius Smith. And they got a meeting with Julius and sat down and said, can you tell us your best PhD students? And Julius had been a professor there for 25 years. And he gave them a name. Um, he said, my best PhD student ever is a chap called Dr. Avery Wang. That's Dr. Avery Wang right there. Now, Avery, um, unfortunately, he didn't know how his life was going to take this bizarre twist. Um, <laughs> he was sitting in his home office minding his own business when this email came in saying, hey, we're looking for an inventor. Can you help? So, <laughs> So he just hit delete. Now, <laughs> now my, my co-founders are, are not like, you know, super talented. I, sorry, is this being filmed, by the way? Like, is, is it being filmed? Sorry, I didn't mean that. They're super. They, they're awesome. They're amazing. Um, but uh, the one thing which they don't lack is persistence. So they email them again saying, hey, we should meet. So he's like, all right, then fine. Come on. Let's make this happen. So they explained this problem to him, and Avery made a fatal blunder. Whereas all the other experts in the domain had kicked them out, Avery started thinking about it. He's like, oh. And they're like, that's it. That's our man. You know? So they signed him up on the, spot, on the spot. So Avery found himself like locked in his basement, uh, trying to invent this algorithm. And we said, look, 
we're on a timetable here. You've got three months to invent this algorithm so we can build this business, you know, launch it, sell it, you know, live the dream. Okay, let's go. So, so Avery, in this sort of like stunned, kind of like not knowing what had happened to him, is sitting in his, uh, in his, in his basement. Um, and the rest of us are running around with mobiles in like pubs and, and cafes and stuff, taking samples of music and sending it to him saying, have you invented it yet? Have you invented it yet? You know? <laughs> and he was trying really hard. I mean, I, I believe him, but he just couldn't come up with the answer. You know? He's like, I can't do it. And meanwhile, we're running around as good MBAs do, like writing the business plan, writing big financial models which projected all this growth and you know, all these revenues and, and um, putting together these pitch decks for angel investors and stuff. And Avery's like, I can't invent this thing. Um, so he, he, um, he's absolutely, he's a genius, but he's not like hugely art articulate, you know. So he's like, I need to rehearse my speech to tell these guys that I can't do it. So he was in a cafe in Palo Alto practicing, um, you know, like I give up. But in, uh, <laughs> 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 but he overheard this conversation about somebody looking up a name in a phone book. And he's like, you know what, you've got a phone book with you know, this, this thick with 100,000 names in it, but you can still find a name pretty quickly, and that's because it's organized a, a certain way, right? So he's like, wait. So he's like, hang on a second. So what if I, so if you have a piece of information in the music, and it matches with a certain track, then you get a match, and it, you get a match again like a tenth of a second later, and another one two tenths of a second later, what happens is that you get this diagonal line which emerges of matches between, um, between the track and the, uh, the sample. I, hear, I see a lot of nods. If you guys understand that explanation, you can come up here and, and, and explain it. <laughs> I, I, that's the best I can do, but uh, I, I, I've never actually been able to understand it. But I think the best way to bring this to life is, so, all right, now, you, you guys failed me miserably with the 2580 question, but tell me, okay, see if you can do any better. Can you name this song, please? If I can get this. Ah. Ah. Name that. It's easy. Come on. Anyone. Anyone. Just shout it out. Oh. What song was that? Yes. Who said that? What's your name? Philip. Philip. Yes. Philip. Yeah. It's been, no it's been noted. Well done. Okay. <laughs> okay. Name that song. Exactly. So that was what Avery was hearing down in his, cellar, in his basement, trying to invent this algorithm. And no wonder he was struggling. We didn't know what it was taking him so long, you know. Um, <laughs> but he finally had the breakthrough. We created a demo, which we were able to take to our early investors. Uh, bless them, because this was, you know, this was pie in the sky stuff, you know. And we had the great benefit of some wonderful investors including uh, Brent Townsend, who is the 
inventor of the 56K modem. Um, anyone remember the 56K modem? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so every time anybody anywhere bought a, a computer with a modem in it, uh, Brent earned $1.25, uh, which adds up pretty quickly. And uh, uh, he has been a fantastic uh, you know, member of the company at, at the board uh, for, for a very long time. So we have the idea. We have the technology, sort of. Uh, we have the checks. And it's time to get into business. So um, we used a very um, structured recruitment approach. So that's my uh, old flatmate. Uh, that's some random guys to work with. That's my cousin. Um, <laughs> you guys, you're not taking me seriously, are you? Um, what I'm trying to explain here is that there was a method to our madness. Um, uh, uh, and specifically, um, what I'd said in the beginning was that there was no music database in the UK. Sure enough, there wasn't. So we had to go out and create it all by ourselves. And how did we do that? So um, Philippe came up with an idea. He said, we don't have this music. We don't have enough money. Why don't we do a deal with a distributor of music? So imagine the largest record uh, shop on Oxford Street at the time carried 20,000 CDs. So the distributor had every single CD sold in the UK, which was about 100,000. And um, so the idea basically was that we would go in there, um, take the CDs off the shelf, pop them into these specially built machines, which had like three CD players in them, type up the name of the song, the artist, all the tracks, all the metadata associated with it, um, rip the fingerprints, because the Shazam algorithm works not on the original music, which in any case is, is protected and, and, and licensable, but on fingerprints, which are uh, small representations of that music, put the CD back, pop it back on the shelf, and not pay them a penny. Um, <laughs> and so we did this deal with them. And for them, it was a nice way of having the metadata, which they never had before. Um, because this was a little bit, uh, we were out of our depth. We hired a US Marine called Bart, who ran an operation which hired like young people to, to work in shifts to get this done over the four or five months. Um, at one point, we had three shifts working 24-7, um, you know, just encoding every single CD available in the UK. Now, this was, you know, a time of just unbelievable kind of like adrenaline and excitement. Um, the problem was that our timing was terrible. So I quit my job in March of 2000, which is the week that the NASDAQ peaked. We got the angel funding away that summer, which was great. And then we needed to deal with the, with the VCs, and this was in 2001. In 2001, um, you know, it was clear that you know, the party was over. So we just, ma just about managed to get away our, our first round, which was $8.5 million, uh, 5.3 million pounds. Um, and already there was, you know, blood on the streets of the dead startups. Um, you know the terms uh, B B2C and uh, B2B? So the joke then was B2C was back to consulting, and B2B was back to banking.
You guys think this is funny, huh? <laughs> it wasn't funny. We were just burning cash because we didn't have a business model. So we spent all this money. We, we launched uh, the product. Uh, you know, we started to get a little bit of uptake, but there literally was no money to be made. So the first thing we came up with was um, the reverse charge text message. So you dial the number straight down the middle of the mobile, which was 2580. Uh, yes! <laughs> I can't believe it! <laughs> Um, 2580, straight down the middle of the mobile, would make a voice call, which would hang up after 15 seconds, and the user would get a text message with the name of the song and the artist. And that would cost the user 60p, or 50, 50p, and uh, we get a small share of that revenue. That was the original business model. And people would say, oh, that's great, you know, I, I wonder what that song was. What's the number again? I'm like, 2580, so it can't be that complicated, for goodness sakes, you know. Um, and we were just burning cash. Um, we tried other things as well. We tried selling ringtones, um, you know, but we were just not covering our costs. And you get to the point where we had to do another round of funding in 2002, which was really painful, um, and another one in 2004, just, just to stay alive. But if you keep burning cash, there's only one place you're going to end up, and that's in bankruptcy. Um, and we would sit in board meetings and, and have this discussion, which is, are we solvent or are we not? Uh, because if you're a director of a company which is trading insolvent, um, they lock you up. Um, and I would have a, a sense of humor failure, and my parents, I, I don't know what I'd tell them, you know, um, if I were in jail. Um, so so my, I might have to give uh, advice. So my advice is, if you're an entrepreneur, don't run out of cash. That's, that's <laughs> one of the most important things. Um, it actually got so bad that in 2005, um, we're just running out of ideas. So the best we could come up with was to sell our technology just to stay afloat. So it turns out that there's um, agencies which collect royalties on behalf of artists. And they use a fairly manual process. So people with clipboards listening to what's being played on the radio saying, oh, that's Madonna. Ah, that's Prince. And that's how the artists get paid. Now, using Shazam's technology, they were able to do it much more precisely, much more cheaply, and uh, you know, on a much bigger scale, which is, which is good for artists. And so we sold our uh, you know, core intellectual property, our you know, prized jewels, uh, in order to just to be able to stay alive. And that's why, for me, it's a, it's a privilege to be here today to be able to tell you the story, uh, just because it... It's not smooth sailing. I was sitting at the back listening to um, Rich this morning talking about doing a Series A and a Series B and keeping it all in the bank. We spent every penny that we raised and more besides. You know. But things changed in 2007, actually changed in 2008 when the App Store launched. And everything changed for us. Because finally when, when the iPhone was there and then Shazam became an app. And an app was just much more intuitive and much simpler experience. And uh, initially, we were able to you know, charge for the apps. We started to have some, some income coming in. Um, and we 
basically discovered a platform which made sense to the user. So people didn't have to remember that number. They didn't have the problem of the text message not showing up. And um, unfortunately, our, our, our business plans were, were way off. And I take no responsibility for that. I blame Philippe for the numbers. But um, so in year, in year one, our revenues were, uh, sorry, were zero. In year one, it was 25 million. In year two, I think it went to 75 million or something. Uh, but basically, we, we were not only we, we were not off by an order of magnitude. We were off by more than that. I mean, we we never even got close. Once the iPhone launched and things took off, then everything changed. So um, it took us for the first uh, to, to, for Shazam to be used a, a billion times took. 10 years. After that, it took one year for the next billion. After that, it took two months for the next billion. Uh, so it was totally transformative. You know? And, and that, it, was, it was actually pretty amazing to see that you know, this little itch which we had, which we wanted to scratch, was something felt by you know, 150 million people every month around the world. Um, and I guess the end of the story is that, um, actually, I'll tell you a little anecdote along the way, which is when the iPhone launched, apps couldn't actually access the microphone. And we said, oh, please, oh, please, because uh, you know, if we can do that, then that'd be great. So uh, we were one of the first apps available on the new iPhone in the App Store. Uh, and Apple put a, a bunch of advertising to promote, uh, not Shazam, but people would say, what's an app? Uh, so yeah, this is what an app looks like, and this is what you can do with it. And that really helped us you know, establish our position. And so in, at the back half of 2018, uh, we had an offer from Apple to, to buy the company, which is now just about closed uh, a few months ago. Um, last year was really tense because the deal was being investigated by uh, the European Commission. Luckily, it all went through without any uh, uh, issues. Uh, it was uh, approved unconditionally. Um, and I'm delighted because uh, we've known Aqua for a very long time. I think it's a, it's a great fit. I'm really looking forward to seeing you know, what happens next uh, with, that, with that partnership. Now, please, if you have any questions along the way, please feel free to interrupt me. Uh, put your hand up. It's too late if you want to tell me what 2580 is for. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I actually didn't do the whole ride uh, because otherwise I would have had a lot more uh, gray hair than, than I do now. But um, part of our conditions of funding is that we'd bring in a, a management team, which we did. So we hired a, a CEO and a full management team. So several of my co-founders and I, we left uh, around 2003, 2004. And I went to work for Save the Children because I wanted to do something which gave back, not just you know, making more money for, for our investors. And um, this was in, in Cambodia, and I learned a lot about what does it take to have uh, impact, both at kind of a national level as well as at a local level. And it left me with a, a big passion for the power of young people. Um, this is quite unfortunate for my kids, because I keep trying to, s to discover their inner power, and they keep telling me to go away. Um, <laughs> but I'm sticking with my story uh, for now. And I ended up working uh, more recently, as, as Peter mentioned, for uh, Virgin Money, part of the Virgin Group. And, and the motivation there is that it, it just felt like I, I shared their values and uh, their mission is changing business for good, which I thought is uh, really well uh, articulated. And in that role in uh, Virgin Money, 
I was looking at coming up with new financial services for, for young people. And I thought, this is absolutely fantastic, because this gives me an opportunity to go down to, to unis, uh, you know, head down to the bar, have a few drinks, and have a conversation with young people and find out what's on their mind. So my, my boss at the time was horrified to hear this. He didn't think this was appropriate. Um, but I, I strongly felt that's the best way to you know, understand your customers. You put yourself in, in their shoes. Now, I started off, as, uh, as Peter did this morning, using Google as a, as a warm-up and actually found that you know, my memories of my fraternity basement at Dartmouth uh, is, were inaccurate. Like, nowadays, um, it's expensive. Um, students graduate in the UK with 44,000 pounds of debt on average. Um, there's some big issues, particularly if you drop out after uh, you've spent 12,000 pounds, you've got nothing to show for it. Uh, people worry about paying the rent, paying the bills, um, mental health issues which comes uh, associated with that, it's, it's horrifying. And so the last thing that young people need is another you know, credit card. There's a story which I heard uh, which, was, which was shocking to me was someone I talked to said they got a credit card with a thousand pound credit limit. It took them three weeks to max it out and three years to pay it off. That's just not right. Um, and the insight basically was young people didn't have the financial literacy. They didn't have the skills to be able to manage this money which came through their student loan. And the insight actually came from um, talking about people's lives uh, with young people. So I did a partnership with a charity called Uprising, which helps uh, disadvantage of, of young people from less privileged backgrounds uh, with four skills. So one is just the knowledge. Um, second is having, 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 improving their skills. Um, third is building up their networks. And fourth is uh, with their confidence. So the way I set this up was I created a fictitious job and I invited them in uh, for a mock interview. So they'd have the chance to put on a suit or you know, get dressed up as for a work interview. Come in. Um, I'd spend 15 minutes you know, doing this mock interview and then 15 minutes asking them about their lives. And on more than one occasion, I had to walk out of the interview and go and say to my boss, you need to meet this person because they are exceptional. You know, so, so talented, such a great vision about how to you know, make the world a better place. A lot of social entrepreneurs within, within that cohort. So this left me with this sort of like combined passion and belief in the power of uh, young people and this desire to you know, try to make the world uh, a, a better place. And, um, and then very bizarrely, I was uh, speaking at an event, um, and the keynote speaker there was uh, Paul Pullman, who is the CEO of, of Unilever. And Paul made an absolutely uh, you know, amazing speech talking about uh, you know, changing the planet He's a big uh, champion of the Sustainable Development Goals, uh, which is ratified by 193 countries uh, by 2030. Uh, it's hugely ambitious, uh, but um, his talk was so inspiring. And I sent him an email afterwards. He came and heard me speak on, on my, my, my panel. And um, he said, oh, come and, come and see me in my office. So I said, uh, I'd love to, but can I ask you a favor? Um, I have a chief of staff um, who's 22 years old. Uh, can I bring him along? He said, yeah, sure, bring him along. 
So uh, my chief of staff, Cormac, is, is fantastic. And I met him at the London School of Economics where he had uh, invited me to be a speaker. So I thought, what's the best way to try to put my money where my mouth is? Let me work with somebody who's you know, super smart, super motivated, and uh, whose heart is in the right place. So we went along and, and had a chat with, with Paul and his colleague, uh, Valerie Keller, who's a, an alumnus of, uh, of this school. And, uh, and Paul was talking about how do you use you know, creativity and um, you know, art to create you know, mass change and you know, uh, create a movement? And um, you know, I want to reach a billion people, he said. And I said, that sounds absolutely fantastic. I, I have no idea, but I didn't say that. I said, this, this, this is the, the scale of the, the vision, the, the, the scale of the dream, really, to have a mass impact, not through technology, you know, not through sort of you know, mass communications, but through our inner kind of like creativity and artistic sensibility. So this is something which I find um, absolutely fascinating. Um, and I would love to, if any of you are involved with these kinds of thoughts, or if you're working on projects which might relate to this, please you know, let me know, drop me a line. You can find me on, on, on LinkedIn. Um, my wife thinks I've gone completely mad, but you know, that, that's okay. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's very inspiring, uh, I feel, to be able to try to connect uh, both the, kind of like the more kind of like business commercial side, but with the philanthropic side. Um, and I, I think there's a middle ground there, and, and what I sense is that we're moving more and more away from the, you know, start a company, make a million, buy the Lamborghini, you know, live the dream. It just does, it doesn't resonate, it just doesn't make sense, you know. Um, I tried really hard, overnight success didn't work out for me. Uh, but um, uh, I think now it's much more about, you know, having uh, an impact which, you know, one can look back on and consider one's legacy in terms of making the world a better place. So I'd better shut up, uh, at, but thank you ever so much for listening. And 2580 was the number to call Shazam in the old days. <laughs> thank you ever so much. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Sorry, I've gone on really long, but happy to take any questions. <laughs> yes. Thanks for this. That was very entertaining and informative. I was wondering, as you were speaking about the challenges you encountered to basically create the algorithms and the whole system, and then actually selling it and telling people about it, I was wondering whether you had an issue with the advertisement and getting the word out there for people to know about your product and your service, and that's what was running you down with the money and revenue. Because you were saying, yeah, we'll start making some money, but it wasn't enough because people couldn't remember the number or something. Was advertising strong when you were doing it? Was something else? What was it that wasn't allowing you at the time to achieve better? I'm yeah. not saying the success you had after Apple, but at the time, what was the failure looking back at it? Sure. So, so I would tell people about the service, and they would say to me, oh, you should market it. I'm like, I am marketing it. You know, I'm trying my best to market it. But it's very expensive. You know, people just don't have the attention span. You, you know, it goes in one year, it goes out the other. So if you're building a B2C brand, it's 
it's incredibly hard work and much more expensive than you can possibly imagine was the, was the main problem. If you're working on a startup budget, it's, it's even worse because you can't, you can't do TV advertising and all those things which, which big companies do. But it wasn't, um, it wasn't for, because it wasn't a good product or for lack of trying. Or we didn't waste our money. It was just not having enough resources um, to, do, to be able to you know, really pull it off. Yes, the gentleman there. Yeah. The yeah. When you made that decision, what was the value proposition for the residual part of the company yeah. to actually persist to exist? Yeah. And then did you license it back or what, what was the consideration? Yeah. I, I'm really glad you asked that question because I always forget to tell the end of that story, which is we, uh, we sold them uh, a license. Uh, sorry, we sold them the technology, but we retained a license for the business to consume a service of identifying music. Uh, that was 2005. 2010, uh, we raised a big round from a couple of uh, blue chip US VCs and bought our technology back. So we got the patent portfolio back. Um, so, um, so all's well that ends well on, on that front. Um, and then the other thing, which I didn't finish the story, so uh, the, the word imagine uh, was the word that uh, Paul Pullman used when we met. He's like, you know, imagine the possibilities. And, um, you know, there's so much of this which we, we could never have imagined. But uh, thank you for asking that question. Yes? I feel like there's a second story about the switch to... Uh, thank you. So I feel like there's an, another story with the... When you left to go to the Save the Children. Yes. Would you mind just taking us through what your thought process was and what you learned from that experience? Um, sure. I, um, I used to work absolutely flat out. So, so you know, I used to work 17 hours a day, uh, but, but not on weekends, only about 12 hours on weekends. And uh, so it was very, like, mono-focus. You know, it was an, a really exciting ride, but uh, not much diversity, I guess, in terms of what I was doing with my time. I just felt like that was not sustainable, and I wanted to meet people who thought differently and, and, you know, had a different spirit in terms of kind of, like, basically giving back. Um, and uh, in some sense, uh, what I took away from that experience was some of that kind of like philosophy and, and ethos, which I really value today. But what I found is that uh, in charity, there's politics as well. There's, you know, there's, it's quite slow moving compared to you know, what I was used to. So it wasn't the right fit for me for the long term. Um, so I didn't stay for more than a couple of years. But what I, I, I'm, you know, at heart, I'm an entrepreneur. So I, I believe in the drive of you know, trying to make things happen, you know, create things. But at the same time, uh, I believe that if we're working for the greater good, then there's, there's a sweet spot there, which is not, I think, fully formed, but I think it's coming more and more in, into focus. So that's the, that's the story on that one. Yes, sir. Uh, thanks for the talk, uh, My pleasure. You mentioned that there was a really hard period before yeah. Shazam really took off. Yes. Just, just want to know. What, what kept you and your team going during that hard period? And you know, how were you able to avoid the, the back-to-consulting syndrome? Yes, uh, great. Um, so I think it was basically just trying to survive, just trying to stay alive. And we just did whatever it took to uh, you know, not have to close down the business. Um, you know, we went through some really low points. So for instance, uh, we had to lay off people you know, two or three times just to try to keep the lights on, including one of my really good friends who I'd hired I was in the team in this tiny office when there were five of us, 
and um, you know, we had to let him go. And his, his uh, flatmate came up to me afterwards in the pub. He said, how could you do that? You know? How could you do that to my friend? I was like, do you know, do you know what it feels like to, to me? I mean, uh, it's just, you know, it was heartbreaking. But we never wanted to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We never wanted to make that decision which says, we've got to switch off the life support system. We just did everything we could just to keep going. And every single business model we tried. So we tried uh, you know, charging the uh, consumer. We tried selling ringtones. We would then um, uh, you know, offer like, deals to mobile operators to offer Shazam on their handsets. Uh, that kept us afloat for a year or two. Then when uh, iTunes launched, actually what happened is when people would Shazam a song, they would buy the song over iTunes. We were the number one um, affiliate partner for iTunes, generated you know, $300 million a year of revenues for them, but we only got a small piece of it. Um, and, uh, and then even after the App Store launched, and uh, Shazam used to be a, a premium app, but people don't like paying for apps, so we made it free. And then advertising became the, the primary um, you know, re- uh, business model and revenue stream. So we kept, kept iterating um, you know, whatever it took to try to keep the business alive. Mm-hmm. So did you witness a kind of a changing dynamics in customer receptiveness and at the same point of time did you design some kind of mechanism to keep your reputation intact? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, you know, I don't know all the details, but uh, so I, I've got concerns as well about uh, data. So, for instance, I've got this uh, Apple Watch, which is monitoring uh, my health data, which I'm explicitly not sharing with my insurance company because I'm worried about what happens with the data. Shazam has a feature called uh, Auto Shazam, for instance. You leave it on and just listens to all the music. So obviously that you know, captures all the ambient sound. So, um, so, so we took steps to make sure that uh, you know, the data was being kept and managed in the, in the right way. But I'm not close enough to it to be able to give you a really good answer on that. But yes, we're sensitive to that. Yeah. Sure. Any other questions? Yes, there's a lady over there. So first of all, I wanted to thank you for all the music lovers, because you really changed your life. Thank you. Um, And I wanted to ask you, since you had this really huge growth in the past years, how do you think of expanding uh, if you are working on other applications, other features of the apps, if you have any idea that you can share? Sure. So, um, So the good news is that after 18 long years, we finally managed to sell the business uh, at the end of 2018, as of September, October. So I'm officially like, you know, like, I'm out. Uh, and uh, the, the reason I say this was because there was some uncertainty, even until the last moment. Um, but now uh, how I, I spend my time is I try to invest in uh, tech for good startups. And tech for good for me means um, entrepreneurs who are trying to use technology to create a better society, whatever that, that might mean. So I'm not 
passionate about a particular topic. I'm passionate about supporting entrepreneurs who have a dream, who have a, have a mission. And the way it works basically is I say to them, look, I will help you with a little, a little bit of money and my experience and contacts. And in exchange, what I expect is to learn from you. And so this they find a bit confusing because um, you know, that's not the usual transaction. But to me, it's a wonderful way to learn about how can one use uh, technology to uh, you know, create impact. And the, one of the great benefits of my story is it took so long that I've learned to be patient. So I realize that you, know, you can't change the world by day after tomorrow. But you know, if enough people try over a sustained period of time, I think we'll get to a better place, whatever that place looks like. Um, and um, I guess it's, it's a privilege for me to be able to have uh, the kinds of conversations I've had the, the joy of having while being here, being able to... Uh, you know, observe some of the boundaries of you know, technology being played out and then to be able to kind of uh, make those connections, uh, introductions, put in a good word uh, and um, that's, that's, what, that, that's what I do today. And most of the time I'm, I'm in over my head so I, I don't know about what does it take. Uh, Peter mentioned the startup I've invested in called MeVitae which uses neuroscience to combat um, uh, sorry, uh, bias in, in recruitment processes. So I can't tell you the first thing about neuroscience. Uh, what I can tell you is when I talk about it, then people come up to me afterward and say, tell me more, and that makes me happy to be able to you know, make a contribution in that way. Yes. One more. Okay, last question. Thank you. So the key message I would say is... I'm just going to say imagine. And the reason I'm going to say imagine is because um, I think that, you know, with the, there's a, uh, a scientist part of the Google X uh, team who says doing is the best form of learning. So by doing, you learn. Uh, but that's not the end of the story. I think if you you know, imagine the possibilities and you make steps towards it and you achieve that, then you, your ambition and your imagination grows. And you go, if I can do that, I can do this. And, and that, I think, creates a virtuous cycle. So use your imagination. Allow yourself to, you know, tap into those dreams. You know, chase, chase that rainbow. Um, if it's not for you, don't do it. But don't limit your imagination. That would be my message. So. Thank you ever, ever so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.